Good evening. How is everyone? <coughs> okay, if you're like me, you're dealing with uh, spring pollen count. But this evening, continuing in our studies in the book of Job, we had a nice little break last week as uh, Steve Hollowell shared a wonderful message. We're very blessed for his opening his heart to us and sharing out of the abundance of the things that God has done and is doing in his life. Uh, it really kind of complemented our studies in the book of Job as well. So if you didn't have a chance to be here last week or if you uh, couldn't be with us, you know, you can log on, listen to the message. I strongly encourage it. We are in Job and in chapter 18, and we are in what we call the second cycle of debate. We've gone through one cycle of debate where Job has shared his complaints before God, and his three friends have corrected or tried to correct him, and Job has responded to them, complained some more, and then the next one responded, and all three friends had a chance to respond to Job. And then we ended the first cycle of debate. Last time we were together, started what you could call the second cycle of debate. And this evening, we're going to resolve that and finish the second cycle of debate. And then next week, we'll look at the third cycle of debate. So there's much more debate. The rest of this section, though, goes pretty quickly because this, more than anything else, is is reiterative. It, it, it really goes on somewhat poetically to describe the thoughts You'll have whole sections here describing one particular thought in a very beautiful way. And remember, poetry, it's not about getting from point A to point B. Poetry is about the journey. It's about the best way I could say it. If you're not a fan of poetry, well, then uh, I'll try my best to, to make it as interesting as possible. But if you like poetry, you'll like the book of Job because it is some of the, the best poetry that we can read, along with some of the other poetic books in the Bible. But as you look at the way that these men speak and the things they say and the way that the Holy Spirit recorded this debate, uh, you'll find some great truths, and this evening is no exception. So we'll be looking at that, but we're going to pick it up in verse 18, where Bildad is going to strongly rebuke Job. Now, last time we were together, we saw Eliphaz, the first of the three friends. He strongly rebuked Job, and Job responded. Now, here we pick it up again in chapter 18, and before we do... Let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious book in your word. And we ask that we wouldn't just listen to words, that that we pray that the thoughts would be strong on our hearts and that you would speak to our spirits and give us the ability to understand the the things that your Holy Spirit would bring to our hearts and to our minds. We we desire to hear from you, to understand you and, and what you desire us to learn this evening. But most of all, Lord, we we want to see you in the Scripture, in all things, because you are our great hope, you are our Lord and our Savior, and it's because of you that we have hope, not only in eternity, but even in this world. And so, Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's interesting how these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and uh, Zophar, Eliphaz We'll see, he's a spiritualist. He has a lot of very strong beliefs. And then you have uh, Bildad, who's more of a philosopher, right? He has a lot of very deep thoughts. And then you have Zophar, and he's a dogmatist, so he has a lot of rules. 
And it's interesting how these three men really represent three different ways of thinking about why people suffer and how God works. And that bears out in our account. But let's start by looking what Bildad had to say to Job. As Job has been sharing from his terrible misfortune, his horrible suffering, the friends, rather than really comforting him, have been trying to fix him, trying to correct him. So let's read just verses 1 through 4 in in chapter 18, where it says, Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You tear yourself to pieces in your anger. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must rocks be moved from their place? Very strong opening by Bildad. And and you see another thing. Eliphaz is a little mild in his rebuke, and then Bildad is worse. And, and, And by the time you get to Zophar, Zophar is just like, extremely strong. So there's degrees of rebuke as well in these cycles. But here he discounts Job's logic. The way he's thinking is proud and insensible. Doesn't really understand why Job is defending himself or his integrity, even though we know Job had done nothing to deserve this suffering. Bildad denies that Job understands God or even his ways with men. And then he goes on to flat out call Job a rebellious sinner. Look at the rest of this chapter. And this is very poetic language. Verse 5, the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark and the lamp beside him goes out. The vigor of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net and he wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel and a snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Terrors startle him on every side, and dog is every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He is driven from light into darkness and banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate, and men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who knows not God. You can't help but see the implication here. The things that Bildad just said are all directed at Job. And he rather poetically describes his condition. You see, he very angrily and terrifyingly expresses the fate of the wicked. And as I've said before, some of the things that these friends say about the wicked are true sometimes. But Job isn't wicked, and they're not true about him at all. They're sadly mistaken. But here he poetically describes Job's current condition as the logical proof for his guilt. In his way of thinking, as a philosopher, it's very simple. Job is suffering greatly because Job has sinned greatly. Not true, but that's his approach. Now, one of the things in verse 13, 13, uh, he he describes Job having been afflicted with a horrific skin condition, which was very true, as we saw in our previous studies. And, uh, you know, when you're you're in uh, verse 13, it says, it eats away parts of his skin, sort of referring to what Job had gone through 
and then also when you get to verses 14 and 16, he mentions the fact that Job lost all of his earthly possessions as well, which was true in chapter 1. He also lost his earthly reputation and his standing because everyone saw him suffering. They, they shunned him. We'll see more of that in our study tonight. They shunned him. Isn't it interesting, when someone goes through a trauma or a tragedy, you're, you've got fair-weather friends. You know what that means? People who, when they see you going through a hard time, just kind of distance themselves from you. I'm not sure if it's that they're afraid it's going to kind of rub off, like they've got a dark cloud, and if you get under it, you're going to get struck by lightning. But, it, but it's interesting how people will do that. You go through a bad time, and your friends, maybe because they just don't want to hear it or they're not really concerned— they distance themselves, and, and they're not really friends at that point, but they just they don't want to be a part of what you're going through. But if you've ever had a true friend, one who sticks closer than a brother, then you know what happens when you go through a hard time. That's the person that, you know, you're sitting there suffering and mourning, and the doorbell rings, and it's them with a meal. Or you're going through a really hard time, and the phone rings, and they're calling to see how you're doing. Or you get that little text, how you holding up? I mean, that's really, that, you know, I don't know about you, but when you're suffering and someone shows that they're thinking about you, even if it's a little note, it means a lot. It really does. But many times in this life, when people go through such difficult times, they find that their friends sort of distance themselves and don't want anything to do with it. That's what happened to Job, because the assumption was he had done something really, really bad to deserve this fate. So... His reputation is gone. His standing in the community is gone. And he also, as, as referred to in verse 19, having no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived, Job had lost all of his children in a horrible cataclysm. Uh, they were all killed in a tragedy. God allowed it. Satan did it, but God allowed it. And he suffered greatly in chapter 1, and then his own flesh was afflicted in chapter 2. So he's referring to all of these things, but isn't it something that Bildad can only see God's judgment? He doesn't see anything else. Has anyone ever said to you, don't overthink it? You know, sometimes when you're learning, whether it be something in the arts or music, or, or you're learning in school. Sometimes your teacher or your instructor will say, don't overthink it. You, you sort of get inside your own head and you, and, you, and you get in your own way. And that oftentimes happens with philosophers. They overthink everything, you know. Sometimes it's not that complicated, you know. And uh, Eliphaz, who we saw last time we were together, was a spiritualist. There's a degree of trying to explain everything spiritually. Not everything can be explained spiritually. And you can't explain everything philosophically either. And that we see, and it's kind of brought out in this book of the Bible. <clears throat> Finally, in verses 20 through 21, and we saw it, we read it already, he's accusing Job of rebellion against God. Look what it says. Specifically there in verse 21, Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. It's referring to Job. Such is the place of one who knows not God. Wow. You know, sometimes you hear people say things like that about someone else. Oh, they're not a Christian. They're not saved. They don't know God. Yeah, it's one of the things you should never do. For one thing, you don't know the heart of another person. What did Paul say? Don't judge another man's servant. Don't get in the habit of thinking you know the heart or the spirit of another person. You can know them by their love, one for another. You can know a tree by its fruit. You can do that, yes. 
But you can't judge someone's heart. Only God knows the heart. You don't even know your own heart. What did Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, teach us? About our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? God goes on to say, I know the heart. But you don't know, the, you don't know your own heart. So don't judge someone else's heart. Bildad has fallen into the dangerous practice of trying to think his way to a resolution. And this is where he's arrived at. And we know from chapter 1 and 2 that it's wrong. At the end of the book, God specifically says he's wrong. So, so much for thinking your way through. And now Job has a response to this. And not surprisingly, this harsh rebuke gets a very strong response from Job to Bildad. First of all, and you have to have compassion when you read these words in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 19. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. That's a very interesting way of saying it. Uh, God never does wrong. It would be wrong, though, to interpret that Job is saying that. What he's saying is, God has allowed something wrong to happen to me. I don't deserve this, is another way of saying. God has wronged me. I don't deserve what I'm going through. Lots of people go through really terrible and difficult circumstances that they don't deserve. And Job is just one of those many people throughout history who could say that. But here, you, you have to feel for Job. I mean, these attacks were tormenting him emotionally and psychologically. He's already suffering physically. And now he's dealing with this, and he would rather that they just leave him alone than attack his integrity. His integrity is all he has left, and they're trying to take that away from him. Sad, really. Now he cries out for justice from God in his circumstances. He still believes that God is a just God. Here's what we read in verses 7 through 12. Though I cry I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice He has blocked my way, speaking of God, he has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree and his anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force and they build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. This is how Job feels. It's not true, but it's how he feels. You know, I think sometimes we can separate in our minds biblical truth and practical experience. Biblical truth never wavers. It's always the truth of God. Amen? But it doesn't always feel that way. Many times our experiences make us feel differently than what the Bible would tell us is true. Now, I'm not suggesting you you dispute God's word, but Sometimes you have to emote. Sometimes you have to say, you know, I know the Bible says, but I feel. I feel this way. I feel that this isn't true. Even even if you know it's true, sometimes it's helpful to express your feelings. Not because you're trying to convince yourself to think improperly, but because you're trying to work through how you feel. 
I mean, there are counselors. There are people who can help you when you're, when you're depressed or you're having a difficult time. And they sometimes refer to that in the modern lingo is talk therapy. What is talk therapy? It's just talking it out. Have you ever noticed it's helpful to talk things out? You know, and if you have somebody, you can just say, look, I, I know God is good, but look at what I'm going through. It doesn't mean you're cursing God. It doesn't mean you don't believe God is real or, or true or can be trusted. But at the moment, this is, this is your emotional response. So a lot of what Job shares can be qualified as sort of an emotional response to his suffering. And you can understand why he's having this response. He's crying out for justice from God to circumstances because he feels rejected. He feels abandoned by God. Now, don't tell me that you have never felt this way. We all have moments of feeling rejected by or abandoned by God. It doesn't mean he's ever rejected us. We know what the scripture says. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Yet, have you ever felt that way? And I think if you're honest with yourself, of course you have. He feels humbled or even humiliated and even attacked by God. Feels like God is out to get him. Because why else would this be happening? He goes on to describe his isolation, his alienation, how he feels all alone, and he cries out in this in verses 13 through 20. And this is really kind of sad. He says, He has alienated my brothers from me. That is, God's circumstances, God has allowed circumstances in my life that have made me feel all alone. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive to my wife. Now, that that may seem a little comical to you. I don't think it's so much that he had bad breath. It's when he would speak... His, his wife didn't even want to hear what he had to say. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. There's a, there's a phrase you hear often. You can see that it has a biblical basis, skin of my teeth. That is his gums. That's all I have left. Even his teeth, perhaps, have been taken from him. So you, you see, this, this is interesting to me because I remember back in, it might have been the late 70s, there was that, that film called The Elephant Man. And it was about a, a gentleman who suffered a horrible condition, not unlike what Job had. And I, I remember the, the one lasting impression that I had have, after having seen that very challenging movie to watch was this poor guy. What did he do to deserve that? Very much what you respond with when you read the book of Job. This poor guy, what did he do to deserve this? And people treated the elephant man in the way that they were treating Job here in this as well. They just sort of, li- listen, I can remember times as a young person being around other classmates who had conditions. And you know how kids are. They, you know, if they don't understand something, they'll make fun of kids. They bully, they pick on them. 
And it's really sad. And looking back, you know, I only wish that I knew karate then, you know, (laughs) because so many kids were just brutal. There were kids vicious. They were, they were, they were, there were kids that had cancer. You know, there were kids that had skin conditions. There were kids that had problems and they got picked on. And, you know, in my mind, I go back and if I only knew then what I know now, I would have done something about it. But I was little and getting picked on all the time too. But it just seems so unfair. What is it in our wicked minds that when someone's suffering, we seem to pile on and make it worse when we should bring comfort? Now, I'm not saying, you know, I think most mature Christians don't do that. But let's face it, the world, when someone's suffering, they have no problem adding to that suffering, which is really sad. So I think of that movie. I haven't watched it since, but... Uh, it was it was it was tough. It was a tough watch, and this is a tough book to read. And and when you think about it, that's how they were treating Job in this awful way, such that he felt abandoned, isolated, alone, having been rejected and abandoned by his friends and family, who you would think would have stuck with him through this difficult time, having been ignored and disregarded by his own servants, the people that served him. His physical torment caused everyone, even his wife, to forsake him. How sad. And then this is, this is a tough two verses to read. Here you see he cries out to his friends, cries out for his friends, have pity on him. They couldn't even show him pity in his torment. Look at verses 21 through 22. They're just so concerned about being right that they, they, they seem to have a hard time just showing basic compassion and sympathy. It says, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Now, we, we know what actually happened. God took down the hedge and Satan afflicted him. But the way Job looks at it is God allowed this. So is he blaming God? Well, he's placing the blame with his suffering in God's hands because God controls all things. He's not wrong, but he's also not right. I think that he's got a limited vision. He really doesn't understand. I don't think any of us do understand what's going on. But notice he's crying out. He says, will you never get enough of my flesh? Why can't you just show me a little pity? What's the problem? And then he goes out, crying out for redemption in his suffering. This is, this is really, verses 23 through 27 are very, very powerful verses. And we're going to look at them a little bit more closely. He says, oh, that my words were recorded. And isn't that interesting? His prayer was that his words would be recorded. And here we are, thousands of years later, reading his words. And I guess that prayer was answered. Oh, that my words were recorded and that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now you see that he had not only lost he, he, he lost everything, but he had not only lost his family, his wealth, and his health, but he had lost his friends. But he had not lost his integrity, and he had not lost his faith. I, else, why did he say what he just said? 
You see, he didn't lose faith in God. He didn't understand, but he hadn't stopped trusting God either. Look what he said. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth. He'll, in his flesh he will see God. You're seeing Job here talk about a resurrection. And we, of course, know and experience in Jesus Christ the resurrection from the dead. He knew that a day would come where he would be resurrected from the dead. The Old Testament saints understood this. They didn't understand it like we do, but they understood it and they had that hope. And Job had that hope in God and in his Redeemer, who we know is Jesus Christ. He cries out for redemption in his suffering. He desires that his story would be recorded for others to read. And and, and isn't that something? Here we are reading it. He yearns in sincere and deepest faith for God to defend him from his many attackers. And at this point, he believes that ultimately God will defend his integrity because he knows his integrity is intact. He does believe the day will come where everyone will understand that he did nothing wrong. However, he believes that this will only happen after he dies and when he stands before God. He doesn't have any hope of his integrity being defended in this life. And yet, when we get to the end, you'll see it was. His hope is in the afterlife, and yet he still has hope in this life. He just can't see that right now. Finally, he turns it around on those that would attack him in verses 28 through 29. He says, if you say how we will hound him, that's how he felt, since the root of the trouble lies in him, You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. See, be careful. What you're saying, your words may come around upon you. You're you're declaring judgment against me for something I didn't do. Hey, listen, what comes around goes around, what goes around comes around. You know that. You've heard it before. It's true. You understand you got to be careful. You don't want to be in a position where you're trying to expound upon uh, the thoughts of God because you really don't understand God's ways, and neither do I. Job didn't. They didn't. That's where we find ourselves. So he warns his attackers not to continue making baseless accusations against him, and that's what they were doing. Have you ever had somebody do that? I know why you're going through this. You're going through this because X, Y, Z. Everybody thinks they know everything. Only God knows all things. Amen? You don't even know your own heart, as we said, right? God knows your heart. So we put our trust in him. Okay, so Bildad, in this second cycle of debate, has really come at him strong. And Job has responded very strongly. Well, now Zophar, he strongly rebukes Job. And as I've said already, Zophar is probably the the harshest of the three. His rebukes seem to really, really come at at Job very strongly. Here's what we read in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 20. Then Zophar the Namathai replied, My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer, because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. Isn't that interesting? What's Zophar's concern? You're telling me that I'm wrong? See, that's the dogmatist. The dogmatist has to be right. The philosopher, you know, tries to figure it out. The spiritualist tries to figure it out. But the dogmatist has it figured out. That's the person that has all the answers. You ever met someone like that? 
You ask them a question, they, don't even, they haven't even listened to the full question. They already know the answer to the question before you ask it, because they know everything. Know-it-alls, we might call them. A dogmatist is a person like this. Jesus dealt with these people. The Pharisees, they were dogmatists. They were know-it-alls. They knew everything. They knew what you were supposed to do. If you were suffering, it was because you had a demon. Uh, everything could be figured out. Everything could be explained by them. There's never a time where they ever said, we don't really understand this. And if they did admit to, to, to needing more understanding, if you came up with something better than they had, they would disagree with you anyway. And Jesus encountered these people in the Gospels, and we see it all the time. But Zophar, he is offended. Imagine that. Job is the one that's truly offended, but this guy is offended by Job's rebuke. How dare you tell me that I'm wrong? And then he insists that Job is wrong. See, that's the the thing. Only one person can be right, right, in their minds, and it has to be me. Therefore, you're wrong. If I'm right and you disagree with me, you're wrong. That's a dogmatist. Look at verses 4 through 11. We'll read the whole section in uh, chapter 20. Surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since man was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though his pride reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Like a dream, he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will not see him again. His place, will, this, his place will look on him no more. His children must make amends to the poor. His own hands must give back his wealth. The youthful vigor that fills his bones will lie with him in the dust. So, what he's saying is wicked people may prosper for a little while, but very briefly, and then ultimately they're going to be judged. Therefore, Job's prosperity was brief, and his judgment is for his sin. And that's That's the dogma that this man Zophar is preaching. He's discounting Job's knowledge of mankind as pure ignorance and denies that Job's wealth was the result of God's blessing. Your children are going to have to give it all back because you didn't deserve it. You know, if you have somebody in this life who's very wealthy and they became wealthy through wicked means, and there are a lot of people like that, let's be honest, and then they die... And then the authorities catch up with them. The children, the inheritors, don't get to keep that money, right? They have to pay it back to the people they cheated and pay it back to either the government and taxes or whatever it is. They, They can't keep it. And so what he's saying is, oh, yeah, you had wealth, but now it's been taken away. And you got to give it all back because you didn't deserve it. Nice friend, huh? Then he goes on and calls Job a deceitful sinner. Look at verses 12 through 19 in chapter 20. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, he hides it under his tongue. Very poetic language. Though he cannot bear to let it go and keeps it in his mouth. Yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. He will suck the poison of serpents. The fangs of an adder will kill him. He will not enjoy the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. What he toiled for 
he must give back uneaten. He will not enjoy the profit from his trading, for he has oppressed the poor and left them destitute. He has seized houses he did not build. In other words, you you stole everything you had, and that's why it was all taken away. He's claiming that Job is suffering for lying and not for confessing his evil ways. That's what he means when he says, you know, the evil is uh, sweet in his mouth, hiding it under your tongue. It's the idea that you know what you need to say, but you don't say it. Uh, We might say butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, right? It's this idea you've got something, but you don't confess it. It's right here. And you keep going on pretending that you're right before God when you're not. And that was his assessment of Job, if you can believe that. And then he claims that Job is destitute because God made him repay that which he stole from others. You're only getting what you deserved. Wow. Finally, he rather angrily and terrifyingly expresses Job's fate, which is due to his suggested wickedness. So this is what you're going to experience because you're wicked. Look at verses 20 through 29. Surely he will have no respite from his craving. He cannot save himself by his treasure. Nothing is left for him to devour. His prosperity will not endure. In the midst of his plenty, distress will overtake him. The full force of misery will come upon him. When he has filled his belly, God will vent his burning anger against him and rain down his blows upon him. Though he flees from an iron weapon, a bronze-tipped arrow pierces him. He pulls it out of his back, the gleaming point out of his liver. Terrors will come over him. Total darkness lies in wait for his treasures. A fire unfanned will consume him and devour what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him and a flood will carry off his house, rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. I'm glad to say we don't hear from this guy again. We're going to hear from the other two, but not from him. He didn't have a whole lot of nice things to say, did he? And he was wrong. That's the, that's the irony of the entire debate, is that these guys are wrong. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. What if they had been true friends? What if they had been good counselors and comforters? Just saying. Would it have made it easier for Job to bear up under his suffering? I think so. Maybe a lot of Job's complaining was the result of their attacks. Maybe a lot of what Job said when he poured out his complaint before God had a lot to do with the fact that they just kept attacking him. They certainly made it worse. Some suggest that the the first attack of Satan was to take away Job's family and his prosperity. That the second attack of Satan was to take away his health. And the third was to try to take away his integrity through his friends, so-called. And so you have it. Job was made destitute. Job was physically uh, afflicted. And Job's integrity will not be defended in God's presence after he dies. That's the comfort that Zophar offers to Job. No comfort at all. Finally, Job responds, and he responds to the rebukes of all three. To Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Again, two weeks ago, we looked at what Eliphaz had to say. But Bildad and Zophar are mentioned here. And what they all had to say. And here... He opens, and this is, this is good stuff. He, he asks them to truly consider his words in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 21. Then Job replied, listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. Give me this much, he might say. Bear with me while I speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. 
He's just asking them to listen. They haven't been, but they, he's asking them to listen. We'll see in the third cycle of debate, they're still not listening. But then he challenges the beliefs of Eliphaz. Look at verses 4 through 16. This is directed at the first of the three friends. Is my complaint directed to man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Clap your hand over your mouth. When I think about this, I am terrified. Trembling seizes my body. Why do the wicked live on? Growing old and increasing in power, they see their children established around them. Their offspring before their eyes, their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their, their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of the tambourine and harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. Essentially saying, so Eliphaz, everything you said, it doesn't make any sense. You see, Eliphaz, the spiritualist, had these very strong beliefs. And his suffering, Job's suffering, disproves the comfortable principles of the spiritualist. His suffering takes away the theory that Eliphaz had put forth. The wicked do, in fact, prosper in this life. See, what Eliphaz was saying is, the wicked don't prosper, only the righteous. But look at life. Look at our world today. Do the wicked prosper? Have you ever heard of Hollywood? Washington? I mean, there are so many places in our culture today where the wicked, the absolutely evil and wicked people in this world are prospering. Billionaires. So how could that possibly be true? That's the essence of what Job is saying to Eliphaz. The principles of the spiritualist do not hold water. Then he goes after Bildad. The philosophy of Bildad. In verses 17 through 21, he says, Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate God allots in his anger. How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by a gale? It is said, God stores up a man's punishment for his sons. Let him repay the man himself so that he will know it. Let his own eyes see his destruction. Let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about the family he leaves behind when his allotted months come to an end? So he's going after this philosophy of Bildad because history disproves the intellectual arguments of the philosopher. I challenge you. Look, I enjoy reading philosophy. But you know the conclusion you come to? Whoever you read of the famous philosophers, you ultimately come to the same conclusion that Solomon came to in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity. He came to the conclusion to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. When we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see there are all of these isms that mankind comes up with, and none of them work. Man's philosophy doesn't help him at all. There are so many philosophies in this world. Have they solved any problems? Have they fixed anything? 
Or is mankind still the same wicked creature he's always been from the garden? So the argument of Job against Bildad the philosopher is that everything that Bildad says may sound nice, but it's still wrong because the wicked are often spared judgment in this life. Not only do the wicked prosper, but they are often spared judgment. You know how I know that? Because every wicked person in this world, especially those running our country, those wicked people every day continue to be wicked and they haven't been judged by God yet. I read the newspaper sometimes just to see if my prayers were answered. Has God finally judged the wicked? No, seriously. I'm sorry. You think I want those wicked people to prosper? Of course I want them to be judged. I mean, what would be better is they repent and receive God's mercy. But if that's not going to happen, bring on judgment. I'm good with that. And every day I pray and I don't see it happen. I don't give up hope that God's judgment will come. I just, I realize God's much more merciful than I am. But the wicked are often spared judgment in this life. So, so much for the philosophy of Bildad. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true. And finally, he challenges the dogma of Zophar in verses 22 through 33. He says, can anyone teach knowledge to God? See, the dogmatist knows more than God. I've met some religious thinkers who think they know better than God. People into theology oftentimes come up with theological doctrines and arguments that I don't even think God has heard of. You know what's really interesting? Back in the 90s, we had a lot of people within Calvary Chapel kind of gravitate towards Calvinism. And I am not a Calvinist, but you know something? Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. John Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. Calvinists came later. They took the teachings of John Calvin, and they promoted this theological argument that even Calvin didn't embrace. And and isn't it interesting? It divides people because people are trying to figure out God. Can I just give you a little free advice? Don't think you can figure out God. The minute you think you got him pegged, you're wrong. Zophar found that out, and you will as well. So I don't get caught up in all these divisive uh, doctrines and all these, uh, well, what do you think about this? It doesn't matter what I think. You know what I am? I'm a pastor. I'm I'm a servant of God. I'm a Christian. I'm a Bible teacher. and I'm just trying to teach you the Word. I don't care about theology. I didn't study it in school, and I don't want to. Because studying God isn't knowing God. It isn't serving God. And a dogmatist is only interested in explaining everything. And if God gets in the way of their beliefs, well, then either God has to change <laughs> or they have to come up with some theory for why God can't change. I, it's, it's amazing to me. So I stay away from all that stuff. I really do. Can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? One man dies in full vigor, completely secure and at ease, his body well-nourished, his bones rich with marrow, and another man dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Side by side they lie in the dust, and worms cover them both. I know full well what you were thinking, the schemes by which you would wrong me. You say, where now is the great man's house? The tents where the wicked man lived. Have you never questioned those who travel? Have you, never, have, have you paid no regard to their accounts? 
that the evil man is spared from the day of calamity, that he is delivered from the day of wrath? Who denounces his conduct in his face? Who repays him for what he has done? He's carried to the grave and watches kept over his tomb. The soil in the valley is sweet to him, and all men follow after him, and a countless throng goes before him. So how can you console me with your nonsense? And by the way, that's pretty much what I decided theology is. Now, don't get me wrong. There are truths in theology that I embrace because they're biblical truths. But anything beyond that and above that, I consider it nonsense. I like the word in Spanish, tonterias. It sounds better, I'm sorry. It just sounds better, tonterias. Nonsense. Nonsense. And that's what it is when you think you can explain how God thinks and what God does. And by the way, that's generally what theology tries to do. How can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. I like that. This is like my favorite section tonight, as you can probably tell. So he challenges the dogma of Zophar because practical experience disproves the doctrines of the dogmatist. Practical experience. Just look at life. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. It doesn't ring true. The wicked and the righteous often suffer the same exact fate. That's what, that's what Job is saying. So how can everything you're saying be true, guys? That's what he would say. The wicked do, in fact, prosper. The wicked are often spared judgment. And the wicked and the righteous offer, often suffer the same fate. So all of their arguments are nonsense. And so he dismisses their verbose arguments as pure, unsubstantiated nonsense. I think God put this book in his word for a reason. Who are you, O man, to think that you can explain God? Think about it. Really, think about it. If God were small enough for you and I to understand, he certainly wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. I love, again, I love the Eastern way of thinking. Because the Eastern way of thinking doesn't try to explain God. It accepts God for who he is and worships God out of the mystery of who God is. In in the fact that he can't be explained, they find a reason to worship him. In the West, we try to explain God. We try to figure everything out about God. And when we feel we understand God, then we worship him. So the Western way of thinking needs understanding in order to worship God. Well, the Eastern way worships God without any understanding at all. So you tell me which is better. The wonder and the mystery of who God is has caused me to worship him more. So essentially, the older I get, the more knowledgeable I become, the less I know of who God is and why he does what he does. And it only causes me to worship him more. Be careful that you are not a spiritualist like Eliphaz or a philosopher like Bildad or a dogmatist like Zophar. And remember what Job said. I really, really like this. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Amen. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. You know, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, and yet in my flesh, I will see God. It'll be a different flesh, a resurrected flesh. He says, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. 
how my heart yearns within me. In all of his suffering, Job never lost his faith. And he never lost sight of who God really is. God is our Redeemer. He's our Savior. And he's to be trusted. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord, we thank you for giving us this insight. Lord, we need to be reminded. Your ways are too wonderful for us. That is, they're beyond our understanding. You told Isaiah, your thoughts are above our thoughts, your ways above our ways. Beyond our ability to understand or even think about. And yet, you say, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. White like wool, even though they're crimson. Oh, we can understand that. And maybe that's all we really do need to understand. Lord, give us the ability to understand the simple, practical, powerful truths of the gospel and not be distracted from these truths by so-called high thinking. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.